Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your pro, part of the part of your day today. And without further ado, I wanted to bring back a Cat who was just trying to stay inside the lines of the bar lines and uh, playing the blues and playing R&B back when playing that stuff at folk festivals back when they were getting dirty looks and being thrown out of places and had a chance to play with the Youngbloods and Jesse Colin Young and uh, then went to the West Coast and uh, did a lot of amazing stuff on his own with uh, drummer Joe Bauer and uh, we just heard him playing with the legendary bassist Steve Swallow and uh, he's got been doing a lot lately as well. Uh, looking forward to reconnecting. Lowell Levenger, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you so much, Jake. Where did you find that thing in the, in the uh, Goodwill used record bin or something? <laughs> Yo, man, I'm years? still waiting for a uh, an LP uh, with. I need I need you to sign this. I have never found that record on LP. Those tracks are available on on YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And they so, cook, and man. From, I can't remember. Is that from Moonset or Crab Tunes? Uh, that was uh, well, know? the banana, and, I can, banana. I can look in my record. That was banana in the bunch. That was the one with the car on the front. Oh, okay. That's yeah. the banana in the bunch album. Wow. Yeah. Oh, dude. I mean, oh. can that you talk? That really. I was. I when I first heard, I went, "Wow, that sounds good." Who is that? And then I realized, <laughs> "Holy cow, that's me." That, I wrote that damn tune. What's it called? I can't remember the name of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, when did you first? Can yeah, you talk? Yeah, and Steve sounds great. I, I really like that post uh, 
that interview you did with Steve and he mentioned us and everything. What a, what a great guy. What a great free. I, it was sort of like I was in this sort of Taoist sort of, I mean, it took a minute to get us connected, but the entire interview, we went for like 83 minutes. And then I just was so thrilled uh, that at that point, well, you know, listen, let's just listen in to the audio. You read the, tr the excerpt transcript. I want you, I want to yeah. play this for you and then, then we'll come back and talk about it. Okay. Idea. I, 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 I mean, this is why I love doing this show. So while that was okay, I real this is and we can wrap set one on this story. I, I need to, I we've already vetted Bill Graham in the Fillmore West. This was Banana and the Bunch, Vecchio Nanner, ah. Joe Bauer, yeah. Steve Swallow. That tune was called The Great Blue Heron. And I've never been able to get my hands on this record, but I've known about it. But I had no idea that you were on it. And I said, that's when I knew. That when Burton, yeah. you, I, that's when I knew you were cooking with the Youngbloods out there. So please talk about how you connected with Banana, Vecchio, Nana, because this album cooks. You're playing electric bass. You're, you're, it's cooking, man. Yeah, it's a wonder, wonderful. I haven't, I haven't heard that. I'll send you the, I'll send you the track. It's so great. Yeah. In decades, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. I connected with them when I moved to, to the Bay Area, to, to north of San Francisco in Marin. County. I moved to a, to a legendary town called Bolinas that was full of uh, poets, wonderful, wonderful poets. And I was right down the coast from where Banana and Joe Bauer, the, the drummer, lived. They were uh, two-thirds of the young blood. Oh, my God. Jesse I cannot Collins. believe that you were living with yeah. these post-beatnik. You were with these. What other poets were there? Uh, Robert Creeley was there, Lawrence Furling Daddy was out there, Joanne Kiger, a wonderful bunch of poets. Gary Snyder was coming through all the time. Uh, it, it, it was a wonderfully vital scene to, to be living in, and, and not least was the, the, the chance to, to play with Banana and, and Joe Bauer. I, I actually met them through my bass playing friend Jack Gregg, uh, who was a, a New York bass buddy of of mine, and who was friends from from his youth with with Joe Bauer, who came from Memphis, I believe. But did Jack uh, Gregg have any any relation to Bobby? That that could go on forever, but I mean that was that that was classic. So who I mean, Jack Gregg, where did he fit into the picture? Did you know that cat? Oh yeah, well we knew. See, we we knew like like Steve said, we met back in New York, you know, in, in like '66 or '65 or something. And Joe had Joe was a jazz drummer, and he was from Memphis, and he had come to New York to try to make it, and that's where it's happening. You know, that's where the jazz scene is happening. So he wanted to come to New York and get into the jazz scene. And Jack was from Memphis as well. So Joe and Jack was already in New York and well established, and. Uh, and then Jack knew Steve, and uh, then uh, what's got Dejanette? Uh, Jack Dejanette. Jack Dejanette. Yeah. He, he was in that uh, one of, sort of part of that little circle as well, and uh, so yeah, so we uh, you know knew each other, used to hang out. We actually, I think we probably you know jammed a couple of times in our rehearsal space or some studio or something, but got to be friends. And then, yeah, then when Steve came out here, I think there's a cut on one of those records that has both Jack and Steve on it. 
double bases. Du- double base. I'm going to look. I've got to look that. So I can go find it after the interview, and I can email you and let you know or something. I got all these records and shelves. I mean, so how many? Okay, so this is the question. Bauer Bauer made his maiden voyage to the jazz city of New York when you were still in Boston. Then he came back licking his wounds and he moved in with that lady who came up with the electric dress. Yeah, Diana Dew. Diana Dew. But then would you say that when you guys, you went down to New York for that first time um, and played in that booth at Folk City with your reverb and the Wurlitzer, but was Bauer also still playing jazz gigs once in a while down there at that point? Uh, no, he had he had pretty much given up on New York, uh, you know, on trying to make it in New York and moved to Boston. And then this opportunity came up, and he had already been with uh, Jesse and Jerry for three weeks or something before I went down to join him at Gertie's. They had had a gig at the Riverboat in Toronto for two weeks, and then I think they'd maybe done something else too. So anyway, he was, you know, he had a gig. <laughs> And that's what he was doing. <laughs> he that. needed, yeah, he wanted the gig. So, I mean, yeah. but when you, uh, was it, could you talk, uh, Banana, about um, really hearing Bill Evans for the first time? And, I mean, when I hear that track called The Blue Heron, it just, there's a lot of beautiful conversation going on, but there's also a lot of dissidence. And, and uh, I just was hoping you could talk a little bit about if, if Bill was a major influence on you or who, who were the pianists? All, all those- uh, you know, everybody from, uh, you know, Ahmad Jamal, yeah, Bill Evans, but also oh, Ahmad Jamal, Andre Previn, um, and, of course, Oscar Peterson, and, you know, just, yeah, all those great uh, jazz pianists I listened to as a kid, and uh, they all had a big influence on me. And this little period, that little period of my life there when Joe and I were really, you know, doing a lot of stuff together, and so I was more jazz influence because that's where joe came from and so it kind of got me back into that stuff and wanting to experiment a little bit more i don't you know have (laughs) nearly a millionth of the chops of any of those heroes you know uh jazz jazz guys have but uh you know i could i can uh emulate some of the voicings and whatnot that they that are so beautiful that they create so yeah, it was really fun. that that period was a fun period of my life when we were kind of more more into jazzy stuff and playing with other jazzy guys. But I tell you, I just did a gig on Sunday in Pacifica with um, Matt Eckel, who is the flute player for the David Grisman Quintet. Yeah, I know. I, I, he's a badass. Yeah, I know that cat. And man, yeah, and then Sam Grisman, David's son, who is maybe maybe hell, he's my favorite bass player right now. He is great, and he also. Uh, this how old is he? I don't know, thirty some, thirty eight, thirty six, something like. Does that. Does he play upright or does he? What does he play? Yeah, yeah, upright, acoustic, yeah. Wow. And he's wow. been playing acoustic bass since he could play a one quarter size bass, and he's about five or six. I've I've known him since he was born, but and he's just great. But he is really influenced by uh, you know Neil Henning Orsted Pedersen and uh, Ron Carter and the you know the great jazz uh, bass players. Uh, he's listened to a lot, being in his dad's house his whole life. And uh, he has become an incredible bass player, really flexible. Not only, you know, does he can he play Django and jazz and dog music and that stuff, but he really knows bluegrass, which is, you know, if 
you don't really know bluegrass, it doesn't sound right when you play it. So with my repertoire, it includes all that stuff, you know, blues and bluegrass and jazz and everything. I just go through whatever songs uh, I feel like singing at the time, and they go through lots of genres. I make my choices basically on lyrics. I like to tell stories. But uh, but that includes lots of genres. And these guys, Maddie and Sam, it was great. I mean, we went all over the place. Uh, and so I'd never, you know, I'd never tried that configuration before with me and my five-string tenor guitar and a flute and a bass. But it worked. It was really fun. We're going to do it again. No, no trap set. There was no traps. No, just a just a trio, just acoustic. Yeah, and uh, I love that. <laughs> talk about a difference between that show and Little Stevens' show. Oh my God. <laughs> can you talk, can you talk? You know, here's the thing. I, I, that, that to me, could you explain how? you guys connected or potentially reconnected that was quite enlightening to see that you join uh, him you got us me me and steven yeah oh uh i got this gig at the uh Newtoden norway blues festival these guys they they do this this town Newtoden is amazing it's a town that was saved by the blues in norway and it's kind of a long story but it, uh to be brief, it's this beautiful little town in Norway that sits uh, where these two big rivers come into this lake, which turns into a fjord, which turns into a bay, which turns into the ocean. And uh, there's all these waterfalls and all this water flowing down. And right about the turn of the century, not this one, the one before this, the, the 20th century. Yes. <laughs> uh, they discovered, you know, that you could use this water power to generate electricity. And then at the same time, this guy discovered how to extract ammonia out of the air using massive amounts of electricity to charge it somehow or something or other. Anyway, th and this, that would enable you to make fertilizer. This area became huge, supplying fertilizer to all of Europe and Russia and everywhere, and also starting to get industrial factories going with also all this power making steel and making all kinds of stuff so it was kind of this booming little area in Norway and then as after the Second World War ended um, things boomed for a little bit and then started going down as international trade developed and other countries began doing the same things that you could do in Norway you know making steel and making fertilizer etc cetera, etc cetera. And the economy of the town tanked, the factories closed, uh, and it was getting real depressed. So this is about 1970 uh, or something. And uh, these young businessmen who happen to be blues fans see that blues festivals are happening around Europe and think maybe we could just, you know, do a big blues festival every year and turn the town into a blues festival uh, location, uh, get really good artists from the States and all over, and uh, they went to the bank, and the bank bought it for some reason and loaned them the money to do it, and wow. they did it, and it was a huge success, and the next year was even huger, they got even better artists, they got all this notoriety, and within a few years they were one of the most, uh, you know, uh, revered blues festivals in Europe. And so the year I played it, I think, or no, last year was the 30th anniversary. The year I played it was the year before. But anyway, so they got a hold of my, uh, that black 
CD with all the blues on it, and I uh, really liked it. And the guy who was booking the festival happened to be an old Youngblood fan as well. So they offered me the gig to play there. It's it's in August. It's the first weekend in August, and uh, and they said also part of the the, the festival is partially state sponsored and they want interaction between Norwegian musicians and international musicians, so what would I think if they got a blues band together for me to play with? And I said, that sounds great, <laughs> and then they sent these guys, and I checked them out, and they were incredible. And uh, so they brought me there a week early. I rehearsed with these guys for six days before we had to play. They were all incredible musicians real virtuosos real flexible also they listen you know they know how to play rests uh really really good you know that's stuff a lot of people don't know how to do listen and play rests um and also they all happen to be incredible human beings really great people and they all had great wives and i got to bring jane with me and everybody hit it off with you know within a few days we were all lifelong friends and then we absolutely killed it at this festival. And uh, Stephen is hugely involved in this festival and in Norway and in the general blues scene. Hmm. And he has a school that's based, he doesn't have it, he is the mascot, sort of, of this blues school that's also involved with the festival. So these pe people have built this around this festival, this whole town that has this big civic center sort of thing down by the lake that has a, a venue, a recording studio from which they got all the old gear out of the Stax Studios when Stax Studios sold out. They've got all that incredible gear in there plus a bunch of really great stuff. They have classrooms. It's a school. The library, the town library is there. The town council, I think, maybe meets there. They have meeting rooms. They have uh, a museum they're sister cities with Clarksdale, Mississippi. No toad in Norway is sister cities with Clarksdale, Mississippi. Wow. So the staff of this festival goes to the Blues Foundation things here and the big uh, Pine Top Perkins things in Clarksdale. The head of that association is highly involved with this festival as well. So is Stephen. Stephen was giving out the awards of the year that I played, 2016, and it turns out that my lead guitarist got the best guitarist of the year award. Uh, it, it was amazing. Anyway, so Stephen and I hit it off. That's the first time I've ever met him. But we hit it off, you know, like two old crumbs in a toaster. And, uh, <laughs> he, uh, two old Stephen, crumbs. In, I mean, yeah. When he was a kid, you know. He, so when he was 16... I was, you know, 22 or something. So he was a kid and I was a big star. And uh, he and Bruce used to come to Youngblood shows at the colleges in upstate New York and whatnot and thought we were the coolest thing since sliced bread. So What did uh, he, What did, did he ever specifically talk about? I mean, I find it interesting that, that I had a couple questions about the idea. I know you don't consider yourself like, you know, you talked about not having the chops of like an Ahmad Jamal, but I mean, there's there's something to be said about feel, time feel, and and um, and I just wanted to know, like, ultimately, like what you know, Stephen was. What did he talk about that he loved? Because you guys, while it was, um, 
you know, folk rock, I guess is the best way to, that, that's what you were presenting with the Youngbloods. There was a, a swinging element to it. You guys had jazz influences. What, what, what was Stephen, yeah. what did he and get off on us? I mean, what did he, it was dance music, but it, there was a swing element to it. Well, yeah, and also there was, there was musicianship, which he, you know, himself was doing at, at the learning to play and wanting to be. He, he's a guy who really goes for excellence, and, and anything he does, he wants to do it perfectly anything he directs or is involved in you know he just his theory on life is life is not about you know making a profit or being famous or making money or something that life is about achieving greatness Mm, amen to that dude uh and so what he i think appreciated about us back then was the fact that we were real serious about playing singing in tune um the songs actually had arrangements and had a flow, you know, had a peak and then a, you know, a build and a peak and then a denouement, et cetera, like a, a story would or a novel or something. You know, we had we had dynamics. We got quiet and then loud. We, you know, dropped out. And, you know, we had actual arrangements. We had, uh, it was, um, which is kind of what I brought to the group. They, Jerry and Jesse were individual folk singers. They had no ensemble experience. And when I came along, I sort of introduced them to the concept of, you know, you don't have to accompany yourself now. All you have, if you just play this part, it'll go with that one and this one and this one, and then the whole band is like what you were, you know, doing before, except it's got all these different timbres and stuff to it. So the whole concept of ensemble playing, playing parts, you know. And that's what we did. And we would have sections, of course, in the middle of the tune where we screw around like all the other psychedelic bands did <laughs> but a lot of our tunes didn't have those sections they really went you know were planned and went from beginning to end and had arrangements uh so i think that he really dug that well and i mean it's just it. and so and also the fact go, that their lyrics were pretty good too. yeah well i mean that's that's kind of what for you you brought in this idea of um i mean those guys were were, were singers they could tell a story through vocals but in terms of soloing how did you learn to i mean so much of what i see today and again i don't see a ton of live music and what i normally do see is people that from your generation but a lot of younger cats if i see them sometimes um you know the decibel level starts at 10 on the guitar which actually wasn't even an improvisation wasn't a lead instrument really when you were coming up in the 60s it was more like sort of that freddie green count bassy kind of strumming thing but but ultimately the, the decibel level starts at 10 and it never changes. And I just wanted, it, it, ultimately, there's really no beginning, middle, and end to the solo. There's no story. How did you learn to tell a story in, in, in improvisational, uh, you know, on, on the piano or guitar? Well, I mean, you know, I've listened to all this <laughs> music since I was, since before I can remember, you know, listening to classical music and Broadway show music and jazz and, uh, uh, hillbilly and race and all that stuff and uh, again like you say that this business of having endless sustain on your guitar and being able to just play you know endless sustain being able to bend a note up uh, a whole tone or two whole tones uh, way up high and have it just continue to sustain that can't be done on an acoustic guitar uh all the bending and stuff can't be done on a piano. You can do it on a horn if you've got enough wind. Uh, but it's a different sound, you know, and it's the speaker 
distorting and everything. And I never really learned how to do that very well. <laughs> I can't really. I don't. I don't. And also, I never uh, pedals and all that stuff was always kind of too much hassle for me. I just plugged plug my guitar straight in. So yeah, I play tend to be more uh, passage note passage oriented rather than uh, lots of sustain and bends and effects and stuff. Uh, so that's you know that's a, a different approach to soloing than being able to go, you know, really high, really lots of sustains, bending these notes over these wide ranges and uh, with lots of vibrato and everything. That's not really my style. No, absolutely not. You know, the other thing, I mean, I, I did want to just get this on the record because you have your hand in all these cookie jars, even presently. I mean, it's just such a lift to be able to produce authentic music that's moving that touches people's hearts people can dance to it and um um i did want you to talk about um you talked about in this being in this scene with with dijonette and greg and swallow but then you guys wound up or at least bauer wound up producing an album by kenny gill and I, I was hoping you could, how did that, who is that? I mean, none of those tracks are available online. I, yeah, again, I, we met him, you know, in New York, and uh, he was in this whole scene and all these really pretty far out jazz musicians. Those guys were way farther out than Swallow and Dijonette and those guys. They, they, <laughs> the Kenny Gill scene was uh, pretty avant-garde. But... Uh, I just want to say, I want to be clear that... The, the, playing, yeah, again, his piano playing was just so cool, so clean and so, you know, different and interesting. And and then we had this deal, you know, we could make records of anybody we wanted to. That was the deal we cut with Warner Brothers. What was the, how did you make that? What was the, exactly the, the, the deal was separate from anything the Youngbloods were doing? No, it was the Youngbloods, you know, the Youngbloods had this big hit record in 1969, right? right. And a million selling record. And right about then, the contract was up with RCA. And um, Warner Brothers uh, figured, geez, you know, look at these guys. They play great and everything, and they're touring, you know, starting to be more and more popular and be able to tour all over the place. And got this hit record, and it's pretty obvious it's a no-brainer. They're going to have more. And so what do they want? And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Card Blanche, I said, love it, oh, dude. you know, what we really want is our own record label. And, uh, wow. We want to be able to make records with uh, people that we discover, and uh, then we, you know, we want all this money. And uh, they said, well, you know, okay, if you give us, you know, a couple of albums a year, then you can make up to, I think it was a half a dozen other albums a year or something. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, you can, you can build studios uh, and record them, record your stuff there. And, uh, yeah, so that was our deal. So, really, Raccoon Records was kind of a production company. But we, Jesse had Studio A up at his house. I had Studio B at my house here. And uh, we made these records. So some of the Kenny Gill record, though, was actually made in the studio in New York. Uh, was that a Warner Brothers studio? Yeah, well, I'm looking here. The label was definitely Warner Brothers. It was Raccoon Number no. 5. Yeah. I just want to say that I've interviewed yeah. the entire rhythm section. Uh, Stafford James and Norman Connors are both dear friends of the Jake Feinberg show. I, I just love... How did you choose... I mean, Bauer was in... 
You guys were hanging out at like slugs. Yeah, Joe like... was much more, you know, into the scene than I was. He was, you know, more, more deeply involved with all these guys than I was. But we, you know, recorded it together and co-produced it together. And uh, but yeah, Kenny and Joe picked those guys. Oh, I mean, this is. I had never met him before until I got to the studio. Bob Berg and Carlos Garnett on saxophone. So Rack. Hey, Carlos. Jesus, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't. I don't know if he he might still be around, man. I don't, I haven't gone to him yet, but I I mean, Stafford. <laughs> this is like spiritual. I, was it really free, or was it just more? It was totally. It was free. Totally free. Barely anything, you know, talked about. They just played. I mean, they had a basic, you know, theme. Kenny had a basic theme that he started and ended with, but. And, and maybe maybe you maybe you and Sam and. Uh, yeah. at my mom's house on her Steinway. Wait, wait, say that again? Say, say it again? Some of the other stuff there was recorded at my mom's house in Santa Rosa on her Steinway. Joe, Joe and I recorded it on our little Sony portable hotshot recorders. Uh, yeah, so yeah, some of it was recorded in New York, some of it was recorded here at Studio B in Inverness, and some of it was recorded at my mom's house. Um, could you just talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, that time what other what other kind of uh, music being that you really loved all music like what other albums you you cut for raccoon yeah well, there was the bluegrass albums during that time too with high country high country there's a raccoon number of something and something or other but we did two two bluegrass albums with the band high country butch waller's band wow and uh those Album that first album, you know, it's Warner Brothers Records, right? This bluegrass record, California bluegrass record, comes out on Warner Brothers Records, and it got, you know, distributed and picked up overseas and whatnot. It never sold a lot of records, but it made a name for high country, and it really kind of introduced California bluegrass to the national and worldwide scene. Okay, so you're now you're regionalized. Can you humor the audience and talk about the regional sounds of California bluegrass as opposed to what was going on around the Mason-Dixon line or you know maybe in Vermont? Uh, well, California bluegrass just kind of has a different sound and feel to it. Um, you know, this guy Keith Little kind of embodies it. Who is the guy? Why can't I think of the name of these guys from the foothills that he played with? Uh, Brothers, uh... I just want to read off this. I, I, we're going to play a clip off this. We got Sneed Hearn on Phil, Elon Finer on bass, Bruce uh, Nuarov, Nuarov on banjo, Ed Neff on fiddle, mandolin, vocals, Chris Boutwelf on guitar, bass, and vocals, and Butch Waller on. I mean, this is at, produced on Raccoon, Raccoon number eleven. I mean, you guys had some. You guys had some. Some lift. I mean, really, you were cranking, and at the same time, you were still cranking Youngblood's records out in, at the, at those times. I mean, did you did you ever have a hit as big as the one you had in '69? Oh no! See, again, Warner Brothers <laughs> thought that this was going to make them a ton of money. Right. It wound up costing them a ton. Of money. <laughs> <laughs> got all these records sold like five thousand copies. You know. <laughs> oh man i want to read you know uh banana i want to read you a, a quote from uh the great uh drummer uh albert tootie heath uh and i then i want you to riff on it as how you came up 
He said, um, I once asked Charlie Parker what he practiced. He told me he listened to the radio and what was ever was on there, you play with it and you figure out what key it's in and you play with it some more. And once you've done that, you've crossed styles, you cross tonalities, you cross every element possible in music. I think that's very true. I don't tell kids to practice what they hear on the radio today because they don't really listen to the radio now. Everything's online. They don't have the variety. Either you're listening to hip hop or you're not. Justin Bieber and those kind of people present another kind of music that young people are interested in because it's attractive in the money that they make doing the music. They don't make any money imitating Ornette Coleman or John Coltrane. That's artistic. They don't make money doing that. And when you talked about Steven coming to see you guys and also being his whole mantra is about burning and carving a legacy and making history and not about the money. Um, so just take the first part of it. Did you, being that you didn't have rewind buttons, did you try to put on the radio and listen to all kinds of music and do that kind of Parker, that crossing of genres so that you could play every every song or most standards in, in every key? Yeah, but I, I couldn't I couldn't play every song in every key. In the, I mean, but I mean, like, tell me, I know you're, I'm not trying to make you out to be Bird, you know, but I'm just saying, what were you... How did you do? Was that the similar thing that you did? You turn yeah, on the radio. I listened and... to the radio. I listened to the, you know, the hit parade and all that stupid stuff. And that, you know, but every so often there would be something cool. Actually, you know, like "Come Out of My House" by Rosemary Clooney. Talk about a cool record. So every so often there would be some something on the schmaltz-oriented <laughs> hit parade that was cool, and it was with nice strong stations. But also I tuned in, you know, at night to the country stuff that were weaker stations. And all, then when I discovered, again, KDIA in Oakland, I listened to that all the time. And then my mom was a musician, and they had, we had all the Broadway musicals, the records from that. And then also records of quite a few symphonies and stuff like that, too. And I got dragged to the symphony a lot. And, uh, yeah, so I listened to all kinds of stuff. But I only tried to play the stuff that I really liked. And then I only succeeded in playing the stuff that was fairly easy. <laughs> well, with the KD, KDIA, you were getting off on Johnny Talbot and the Fangs. AWPR before it became KDIA when I first was listening. But that's more soul, soul R&B. Yeah, absolutely. It was all, all soul R&B. Blues, R&B, and soul. And yeah. And, yeah, I think I told you in the last interview, I would hear stuff on that, and then I would go down to Stan Roy's, the, rec the music store, and uh, say I wanted to buy that record, and they would say, we never heard of it, we don't have it. <laughs> you have a Schwann catalog, right? Yeah, so they can get it out and I'll find it. And they would get out the Schwann catalog, and I would find it and show it to them, and then, oh, okay, RS-3229-6, whatever, and they could order it. And then two weeks later, it would be there. And, uh, yeah, so you could order Jimmy Reed albums like that. Um, talking to, to Banana, Lowell Levenger on the Jake Feinberg show. Um, where, where do you, so you play, low, when, I wanted you to address the second part of that question, though, where, where we have younger cats, not necessarily Sam Grisman, or who's more of a, Gen Xer like myself, but you know, younger cats who are going to see quote unquote pop music and they're seeing it for fame and fortune, not for quality musicianship, not for 
you know, longevity, not for making people feel good or dance, but just because of the fame and the fortune. I mean, what is your advice to cats out there today who um, about how, I mean, it was so different than how you guys, I mean, you guys wanted to, to, to live and live well, but I don't think, I, I think you'd be the first to say it was about making really good music that told a story that swung. And if it wound up being a hit, that's great. But that was really secondary to the quality of the music. So, I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you mentor younger cats today who get caught up in saying, well, I, I want to do that because they're famous? Well, I mean, <laughs> if, if you want to do it because they're famous, then you have to find a hook or something or, or you know, the right clothes and something weird, you know, that's different about yourself that has maybe some part of your anatomy. I don't know. Uh, Everything but the music. <laughs> and then if it's the music, you know, that's, that's turning you on and that, that you want to do, then you just have to do it. And Sam, you know, for the last uh, 15 years, uh, taking Sam as an example, he's gone to shows and whatnot, but he doesn't go to shows that, you know, because they're famous. He goes to shows because the music is really cool. Of course, he's grown up in an environment where he's exposed to a lot of really cool music, but he has a, a, a lot of friends. He, the, there's a whole generation there uh, that has that same mindset, and he has a bunch of really great people that he goes out and plays with. He was in a group called the Deadly Gentlemen for a while. They toured for a couple of years all over the place with three other incredible musicians his age. Uh, so there are, you know, people musicians out there, younger musicians who are seeking out the real stuff and who are becoming really, really good and are playing really, really interesting music. Uh, uh, one example is Chris Thiele, you know, a he's since he, he's been on my radar since he was, what, I don't know, nine years old or something. How did, what, uh, what, what caught you at nine? That's interesting. His prowess, you know, and his uh, seriousness about, you know, just wanting to suck up everything from everybody and and then <laughs> mastering it in 30 seconds and blowing it away. Uh, but, you know, but there are lots of guys. He's he's an example of a really rare, you know, rare talent and uh, power of concentration and all that stuff. Uh, but there are a lot of guys, you know, like, like the guys that he played with in his, the other band uh, with Sarah, what's her name? Uh, uh, Watson and or Watkins, and uh, I can't think of the name of their band. Anyway, but that whole kind of generation, and even a little little younger, includes a lot of really great musicians who are who are seeking to play, you know, with dynamics and play perfectly and play inventively and play stuff that's not pablum or pop or whatnot. That's interesting. That has form. Uh, and that demands practice and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I think the Bay Area has a lot of those people here who are doing it, at these little clubs in the city and whatnot. And, uh, and the are, they getting pay, are they getting paid or is it paid? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Never, 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 never. <laughs> um, uh, and then Nashville, too, is a, a real hotbed of that, of really great musicians trying to, some of them are just playing schlock country stuff and making a living and having fun and drinking beer. Others are trying to push the 
the envelope and take it to different places and succeeding. You know? I just want to read off for the audience here this mercurial raccoon label. Uh, raccoon number one. Actually, I guess you got to square this because um, a lot of Youngblood's albums came out on. It, 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 yeah. it says Raccoon One yeah, Rock Festival. Know, Hunter Brothers Young albums are Raccoon, Raccoon, Raccoon. And then this mercurial friend of yours who was, uh, I guess, your buddy from back in the days with the trolls was uh, was a K Jeffrey Kane or was he? Was he, got, he a... No, no, no. He was. We. He was from out here. I mean, we first got involved. He maybe was from. Yeah, he was from back there or something. But we never met him until we got out. I'm there. sorry, Michael Kane was your your buddy. Oh, Michael Kane. Yeah. yeah. No, but Jeffrey Kane. <laughs> this is four. Yeah. Number two was Michael Kane and Rick Turner and I met the first day of uh, freshman orientation at uh, Boston University. I love it. My alma mater. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. You know, this is, uh, so we, we had... Uh, so as you know, then, when you first get there, they bust the whole freshman class somewhere or other, but this time it was out to Swampscott. Uh, <laughs> I did. A lot's changed resort. since that. I think that, that uh, I, I was there in the well, late... That, you know, and it was like, I don't know, you know, 3,000 kids or something right. being bussed out to this Swampscott resort, and you get lunch or something and then it's orientation and uh they pass out beanies you're freshmen everybody has to wear a beanie it's mandatory well there were three guys <laughs> out of all these kids who were not wearing beanies who refused me michael kane and rick turner rick turner of alembic and uh turner guitars wow wow Goop. he's super famous too Anyway, Wait, hold, hold on. I mean, uh, yeah, I think I'm friends with him on Facebook, actually. That's insane. Okay, so, so, here are these three kids without beanies. We, of course, have never met one of them's from Marblehead, Massachusetts, another one's from Long Island, another one's from California. But we see, you know, we gravitate towards each other, introduce ourselves to each other. Every single one of us is totally into Lead Belly, Odetta, Pete Sager, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Light and Hopkins. We all, what do you got three? All three of us, not wearing beanies, are all into, totally into all that stuff. <laughs> of course. We're still, you know, uh, uh, Rick lives down in Santa Cruz. Michael lives over in Point Reyes. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we, we went through life together from that point on. That was the first banana in the bunch. Um, I, you know, did, did you, uh, you lived down the coast from Swallow, but did you wind up uh, engaging with some of those amazing uh, uh, poets that were out in Bolinas at that time? It was kind of magical. Them, but there were a bunch in Inverness, too, and the two communities kind of intermingled together. But I was good friends with Robert Bly, who lived right up the street. Wow, can you talk about uh, how how that impacted? Just just what I mean, you you almost sometimes in the way you tell your stories have a a certain cadence, uh, speaking wise. Did, how how much were you impacted? I just those those cats. I don't know if we'll ever see people like that again, man. They were really, really out hip people, and uh, how, what kind of impact did those guys have on you? Um, you know, I, I, I read their stuff and appreciated their philosophy and whatnot and, and agreed with their points of view pretty what, much. What was it? Could you just talk like to, in, to the audience about just a little bit about their what their philosophy was about life? 
well, that things should be fair and just, and there should that there should be social justice and equality, and that everybody deserves uh, a, a, a fair shake, and uh, you know, this basic, and that there is probably some sort of cosmic something or other going on somewhere that we don't understand. That uh, who knows, you know, um, and that details are worth observing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say it that, you know, I, I was, uh, in completely infatuated with that scene or, or, uh, or their stuff, but I sure appreciated it and I liked it a lot. And, uh, but I never really, you know, got into the scene or hung out with them. Robert and his wife and me and my wife just would have, uh, dinner together and hang out together uh, at each other's houses. That that only lasted, I don't know, a year, year and a half or something like that. And then he moved. But uh, what did they, what was their philosophy? What was his philosophy as it related to success? Well, he would have liked to uh, (laughs) achieve it. And then he eventually did. Of course, at that time he wasn't, terribly successful although you know they were they had a nice house that they were renting so he was you know he was doing okay um i guess more to the point did they did they I, consider I success to be was it a I, rel- I think he wanted to I, it depends on how you gauge success i think um i don't think he was hung up about you know uh financial success or success in society or whatnot but i think he did really want his stuff to be recognized within the artistic and academic community and he certainly achieved that. Can you talk a little bit uh, uh, about what you have coming up uh, uh, this calendar year? And uh, do you feel, um, I mean, when I interviewed Swallow, <laughs> he said, I think I got, we got to go back. Jazz has to go back and start becoming protest music again, <laughs> the way it was. Um, do you, uh, I mean, I know you just, you are who you are yourself on the bandstand, but what are some of the gigs you uh, have coming up, and what are some things that that are sort of germinating that you'd like to see come come to fruition? Well, you know, my life has really changed as of whenever with this whole thing with the disciples started. Oh, I'll finish the story, um, please. About okay, so Stephen and I hit it off, whatnot, become friends. He dig, he comes to the shows, really digs what I'm doing, and loves the band, the, my Norwegian blues band, the Euphoria Five is what they're called my Norwegian blues band. That's one of my dreams uh, now, one of my big dreams, uh, which I'm continuing to dream. And, I've, you know, my th- I think I told you my theory. If you have a dream, just keep dreaming it. And then absolutely. Any, absolutely. any little thing you can do every day, like make your bed or something to help make the dream come true, you do that and it might help. Who knows? It certainly won't hurt. Anyway, so my one of my big dreams now is to tour Europe with the Euphoria Five, this great band of Norwegian musicians. But I don't know when that'll happen, if or when that'll happen. Uh, we'll probably have to finance it or something. But uh, so anyway, my then I saw that 2017 New Toten Blues Festival, which I really wanted to come back to to play with these guys again. But you know they're not going to hire the same guy twice for a big headline position. Uh, so I was telling them, I'll just you know I'll play the folk blues stage. I'll I'll teach. I'll help with the record. I'll do anything you know. And it was, I was making progress, uh, but then I see, oh, look, the headliner this year at the festival is Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. 
So I wrote to Stephen and I said, hey, man, how's it going, you know? Um, I see you're headlining the New Toten Festival. Consider this my official application to be a disciple. (laughs) (laughs) Which is following one of my new mantras, which is you got to ask for it. Yeah, you damn do, yeah. So he wrote back and, and I said, uh, I said, I know you got, I know you don't need a guitar player, but I play a mean B3, which is, you know, what I play with Barry and most of my rock gigs, right? So uh, he wrote back and said, well, I have the B3 seat really covered, but the piano seat is available. And if you want to come on, I know you tickle a mean whirly, and if you want to come on and play piano and whirl it, sir, I would absolutely love to have you. Here's the deal. It's a 15-piece soul band. I love it. That's... <laughs> With five horns and three backup singers and percussion and organ and piano and two guitars and bass and drums. And and, uh, and he says, we're starting out. It's kind of like starting all over again. I'm going to be booking these tours. I think if I, can, if I do this, I know it's gonna, I'm going to lose money, but I think if we can do a few tours... Uh, that in a couple of years I might be able to achieve my lifetime goal of breaking even. I freaking love it, dude. I, I mean, that to me is, it's so, it's so, you know, I mean, there's a little tongue in cheek, but that's, at the same time, it's just a philosophy that has gotten lost on so many of his generation. And and, uh, and it's okay. Everybody needs to do what they need to do. But I, I have to believe it's it's a soul, it's salvation for him. And I think all you guys... I don't know. At the end of the day, it's really about creating music that feels good. A uh, yeah. 15-piece soul band, that's that's a heavy <laughs> – I mean, that – and you're just – you were playing a Whirly? Uh, yeah, so – no, I'm playing a, a – uh, they started out with a Yamaha motif. Now I've got a uh, – what is it called? A Korg uh, Grand Stage. But it does a pretty good piano, and then it also does Whirly and a couple of other things. But mainly I play piano. That's That's my gig in this band. And uh, so I said, yeah, man, you know, I'm, I'm in. That sounds great. And uh, so that's what I've been doing since, whatever, April of last year. And uh, like I say, you know, I love my solo. So this, this gig the other night on Sunday with Maddie and Sam playing all my songs, it was just so much fun. I love doing that. And I love playing even, you know, just solo all by myself at house concerts and stuff like that. And I love my little, you know, scene that I've gotten going of me playing with various other people in the UK and Italy and Norway. But for now, all of that is just kind of in suspended animation because I have the opportunity to do this thing with Stephen, which really is achieving greatness. It really is excellence to, you know, a high degree from the you know what you wear to the rate that the curtain rises as the first two bars are being played of the opening number everything is worked out everything is meticulously arranged and really fun to play and everybody in the band talk about guys you know younger guys who have come up listening to everything and becoming virtuosos these guys you know they're not all younger me and ron ron tooley the uh, lead trumpet player. We're the oldest guys in the band. We're just a couple of months apart. Uh, and man, talk about a virtuoso. Jesus. 
that guy. Well, everybody in the band. That's the thing. This is I've never been with a group like this that has such excellence in its musicianship. Every single person in the band and the crew, for that matter, is incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking. The work ethic is really there. Incredibly strong, incredibly supportive of everybody else. It's a team. Incredibly simpatico. It's a family. But it's not most bands, a huge percentage of bands that I've been in over my life, operate like dysfunctional families. Right. This band operates like a functional family. There's no drama. There's no prima donnas. There's no bitching and moaning. You, nobody's late. <laughs> Nobody doesn't have the right black socks or what <laughs> you know. I mean, it's uh, everything is, and he knows exactly what he wants to hear. He knows every note that he wants to hear. He knows what, how everything he wants it to look. He achieves it by working with everybody as long as necessary to get it the way he wants it. He does it patiently. He does it kindly. He never becomes pissed off or yells or acts like an asshole. Uh, and, he, and he gets what he wants. And if he, if, he, if he isn't getting what he wants, you're gone. It's as simple as that. Are you still at uh, uh, Grandpa Banana? Is that a good email to reach you on? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to uh, listen. Uh, Actually, the best email to reach me on is Lowell, is banana at lowellevenger.com. Okay. Well, listen, uh, uh, continued success. Uh, I'll get you a copy of this later. If, you, if you're able to find that track with uh, uh, the double basses with Jack Gregg and, uh, and, and, uh, and Swallow, I just, I, I'm, I'm on the hunt for all these raccoon records now. It's just, it, 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 it's part of my mission. So, um, but I'm pretty sure it's either on Moonset, which is Joe Bauer's album, or Crab Tunes, <laughs> which is one of the Raccoon records that we put out that is really weird. Well, everything about it is weird, and, and, and you've got to keep flying your freak flag uh, freely. So, uh, Banana, really, Mazel Tov, c continued success, my friend. It was great to hear you again, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. All right. Yeah, we're touring the U.S. I just got word that, that two days ago that we're touring the U.S. from, uh, what is it, April 27th through May 30th, uh, all over the East Coast, Midwest, uh, Texas, but not the west coast unfortunately i was going to say i mean arizona's always the, the the neglected stepchild so um we'll, we'll make it happen at some point we'll make it uh we'll connect in person it'll be great to meet you man yeah. all right all right take care man i'll talk to you soon all righty later on bye-bye great hang and we'll be back in a minute with ebreth matthew after this